Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on November 24th, 2013. Today's message is titled, The Wisdom of Christ, by Dr. Jonathan Wilson, and is based on scripture, Colossians, chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, and chapter 2, verses 2 to 5. It's a delight for me to be back here with you this Sunday and to be accompanied by my wife, Suhuan Park. Uh, last Sunday, my best friend was preaching at Marine View Chapel, and he has a tendency to drift into heresy sometimes. So Suhuan went there in order just to check on how he was doing. And of course, that's entirely, well, not, yes, it is entirely tongue-in-cheek. Uh, and so we're delighted to be here with you uh, today. I. Uh, uh, I'm a faculty member at Cary uh, Theological College, and I just want to say a couple of words about Cary. Uh, this is the new brochure that we've produced, and I want you to know we have partnered with North American Baptists and with Taylor over the years, and uh, Lauren Stark, whom you are going to pray for on Thursday, along with Pilgrim Baptist Church. Uh, Lauren is a graduate of the Doctor of Ministry program at Cary Theological College and has remained involved with us. Uh, we do uh, theological education for MDiv, a Master's of Arts in Spiritual Formation, and a Doctor of Ministry, but we also run Saturday seminars for the whole people of God. That's what it says on the front, carry for the whole people of God. I know you have ties to Taylor in Edmonton, and I bless you in those. I know the faculty there, and uh, the, the president of Taylor is, uh, has been a friend of mine for many years, but I would also encourage you to think about and watch for opportunities to take advantage of what we call the Cary Institute, which runs Saturday seminars. Uh, one of the most uh, significant growing ministries that we have at Cary is the Center for Healthy Aging Transitions. Uh, as the baby boomer generation uh, ages, we will be going through a lot of transitions as we live longer after our uh, uh, paid working life. There are many more opportunities for ministry. And uh, Dr. Paul Pierce, who was the executive director of Beulah Gardens uh, home here in uh, Vancouver, is the sort of main teacher for that center and director of that center. Uh, you could watch for the seminars that they run, along with seminars that are Bible professors. We do a seminar on board leadership as well, and we have had uh, people from all across the denominational spectrum participate. So just uh, a word about Carrie uh, today. Once upon a time, there was a people who wanted to live life well. They described their desire to live life well as a desire for wisdom. Now, these people had the good fortune to live at a, at a, a crossroads, at, at, a very, at the center of a significant trade route. And so they had people passing through their city from all over the world. And that gave them an opportunity to question these visitors, these travelers, these traders, and ask for the wisdom that they had to give to this people. And they collected that wisdom. 
It was all about the forces in the world that shape our lives. It's about, it, it was about the, the status of your birth. It was about whether you were male or female. It was about what kinds of gifts you had by virtue of your birth. It was about what kinds of advantages you had by virtue of your birth or disadvantages. It was about learning to discern people's motivations, being on guard against all kinds of dangers when you were trading with someone. These people collected all of that wisdom and they began to live by it. And then one day, another person arrived. He was not a trader. He was a traveler. But he was specifically there to tell this people who were seeking wisdom about the true wisdom of life. Of course, the people I'm talking about are the Colossians. But they might just as well be us today. And the traveler that arrived at that ancient city in Colossae to tell them about true wisdom was Paul. And he's here with us today through this scripture that is alive. I asked for quite a significant portion of scripture to be read today so that you could begin to enter into that story. You could begin to understand and hear why Paul wrote back to the Colossians the things that he did. And of course, because Colossae was the, a fairly central city and significant city in the province where they were, Paul meant for this letter for the Laodiceans and for others as well, scattered in that area. In a way, Colossae was sort of the, the inland center of trade in that province. And Paul wrote to the Colossians in order to spread this message throughout that province to the Christians living scattered throughout that area. And Paul's message to them is about the wisdom of Christ. And you can hear Paul reminding them of all that they had sought, all that they had desired, all that they had listened for from these traders, from these visitors. Reminding them of all of that and bringing them back to the center of true wisdom. Jesus Christ. The climax of this whole passage is verses 15 through 20. The Son, or He, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, in those following verses. As I was preparing this sermon, I realized once again, as I have other times when I preached. Uh, other emphases from this same passage, that this passage so grips me, I could spend the rest of my life soaking it, exploring it, thinking about it, allowing it to transform me. And it would do so day after day. The passage itself would never get stale. I might get stale, but the passage itself could never get stale. It, it, 
can never be exhausted its meaning. So let's take just a dip into this passage today so that we can understand what Paul is saying when he describes to us this true wisdom, which is Jesus Christ. Paul talks about Christ's supremacy in this passage. That's really the the central theme of the passage. And he does it in a variety of ways. He talks about Christ as the firstborn. He talks about Christ as the head. He talks about Christ as the beginning. He talks about Christ supreme. And, And we can gather all of that up under the language of the supremacy of Christ. In the context of the history of Colossae and the desire of the people there to know wisdom and to gather wisdom from all sorts of places, Paul is saying to them, all of that little bits of wisdom and insight and understanding that you've gathered, Christ is supreme over all of that. To the extent that it's true, it's true because it lines up with Christ. To the extent extent that it reveals something to you about reality, it's true because Christ rules over it. Christ is supreme. The college where I used to teach in California had as its motto motto, uh, Latin, Christus primatum tenens, Christ holding preeminence. That's what Paul is teaching here. And in this passage from verse 15 through 20, he he really moves through a kind of climax and then additional uh, teaching, additional truth. This is a poem. It's in most of our uh, scripture, most of our translations, it's not set apart as a poem. But it's really structured as a poem as Paul writes it. And it moves from one great affirmation of Jesus Christ at the beginning to another great affirmation of Jesus Christ at the end. And in the middle, as is often the case with with poetry in, uh, in Israel, in Hebrew, and as was true of Paul because he was formed by his reading of the Old Testament, the climax is in the middle. So that the passage sort of moves from from, it's a little misleading, but you can say it moves from here to a climax and then down again, but it's not really down. It is, it is, it's moving up, yes, but it all fits together and hinges on that center piece. Verse, uh, the last part of verse 18. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Let's take a look at the supremacy of Christ for just a few minutes in this passage. First of all, Christ is supreme in his relationship with God. Verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Those of you who know scripture may be hearing echoes of what Jesus said to the disciples in John. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. There's a wonderful phrase. Follow me with it. I'll say it a couple of times because it's hard to get the first time. God is Christ-like 
and in him, in God, is no unchrist-likeness at all. God is Christ-like. And in God, there is no unchrist-likeness at all. Sometimes we end up violating the basic conviction of Christianity that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are God in the same way. And we set the Father and the Son against one another somehow. We, we sometimes think of the Father as wrathful and the Son as merciful. No. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit are all equally wrathful against sin and equally merciful to the sinner. God is Christ-like, and in him is no unchrist-likeness at all. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Oh, yes, but to truly know God, I have to go somewhere else. I have to add on this teaching, don't I? Or I have to learn something from this religion, don't I? The Son is the image of the invisible God. Christ is supreme over all other wisdom, all other knowledge of God, because he is the image of the invisible God. He is also supreme in creation. This is the language here, again in verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Paul uses that same language again in verse 18. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now you might think firstborn indicates that there is a beginning to the life of God the Son. There is a beginning to Jesus' life as a human being in the conception uh, of Jesus in Mary's womb. But there is no beginning for God the Son who becomes incarnate in Jesus' womb. He has the same eternal being as God the Father. The language here of firstborn over all creation is he is the one who rules over all creation and he is the one who will inherit all creation. Firstborn doesn't imply a beginning. It rather establishes his rank over creation. And Paul immediately goes on to say that. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. When you seek wisdom in creation and seek to understand how creation works and how life works, as we talked about last week, you are really exploring the presence of Jesus Christ in this world. And until you understand that, you don't have the fullness of wisdom. You don't fully understand creation until you understand what it's for. Yes, unbelieving scientists and unbelieving uh, sociologists and unbelieving philosophers and historians, they can grasp something about creation and about life in this world. But until we understand and until they understand that all of it is 
from Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ, we have not yet fully grasped the meaning of creation and the wisdom that is needed for truly living. It does not mean we reject those things. It means we search them out to see what it is that truly reveals Jesus Christ and his life to us. And what it also means is that we can offer to those who do not yet believe in Jesus Christ, do not yet know God's love in Christ, and do not yet acknowledge Christ as the one through whom creation originates and for whom it is made. Could you? That was a long sentence. Could you follow that? <laughs> I get on a roll. Uh, and uh, those who do not yet know those things, those truths, what we offer to them is the completion of what they are searching for. Just as many times Paul would go and preach in various, church, various cities that had not yet heard the message of the gospel, and people would respond because it's what they, their hearts had been longing for. Peter had the same experience preaching to Cornelius and discovering the message of Jesus and the salvation that comes through him is what Cornelius' own heart had been longing for. That's the wisdom of life. That is the wisdom of creation fully known in Jesus Christ. All things are through him and all things are for him. One brief comment that's just a little bit to the side this morning. We need to understand that when, we, when you explore creation, uh, if you're a historian or a scientist or a teacher or a business person or a homemaker or a lawyer or a nature lover, a bird watcher, uh, if you are recycling, if you are trying to care for the, the plants and animals and the life of this earth, you are ultimately participating in the life of Christ in this world. Listen to the rest of it. Verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Here is a moment of supremacy that we often miss you realize that this world is entirely dependent every nanosecond upon God's sustaining it. We have no life as creation apart from our dependence upon the creator and the creator's love and care and sustenance for all of the universe. We can easily look at the systems that work, that God has put in place, and think, oh, well, that's the way it all works. That's the way it's all sustained. But in the midst of it all, and underneath it all, and around it all, and at the beginning, at the end, is God holding it together. The very moment our ancestors sinned and broke relationship with God, this universe should have just evaporated. Poof. Gone. To be no more. It is the love of God 
and the continuing faithfulness and power of God that holds it together. But God, that's wrong. How can a holy God, how can a just God hold together a world that is broken, that is unjust, that is sinful, and that is evil, that's fallen? How can God do that? That's, that, that's wrong. He's not justified in doing so. Except in anticipation of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ prior to his coming, and on the basis of of that sacrifice now. How can God sustain an unholy, fallen, broken, unjust, evil world and still be holy himself? Because in Jesus Christ, God gathers up all of the injustice, all of the brokenness, all of the fallenness and holds it in his mercy and in his power and in his grace and in his forgiveness, and in his patience. In Jesus Christ, all things hold together. That is the gift of life in Christ. What we find in the end is that the wisdom of Christ is the wisdom of the cross. Life is the reality that is greater than death, as I previewed last Sunday. The book of Proverbs knows the brokenness of life, knows that we can easily stray into folly and that folly leads to death. But the book of Proverbs and what Old Testament wisdom generally does not know is that ultimately the life of all creation is sustained and redeemed by the Son, incarnate, Jesus Christ. And that in a world that has fallen away from its creator and fallen away from the source of its life, the only redemption, the only healing, the only source of continuing life, is the one who became one with creation, who became incarnate as Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, and died for our sins. The wisdom of Christ is the wisdom of the cross. And if we are to live wisely today, we will be living the way of the cross. If we are to live with our lives lined up with life in the midst of a world ruled by death, we will also, as Christ did, live the way of the cross. We will know suffering. We will know persecution. We will know sorrow and grief. We will know our own poverty of spirit. We will extend mercy and be vulnerable in doing so. We will restrain our power for the sake of others rather than serving ourselves. The language of that is meekness. 
We will be hungry and thirsty because we will see that the righteousness and justice of God is not yet a full reality here in our world. Do you recognize what I've just done? I've just recited the Beatitudes of Jesus from Matthew 5 in a new setting. And you realize what Jesus says there of those who are poor and spiritually, recognize their own spiritual poverty, that they cannot live, that they do not have within themselves the spiritual power to live wisely in a world marked by death. Those who are grieving because they see the distance between God's reality and God's love and the way so much life, so much uh, of the world lives. And on and on it goes. Do you know what God says? What Jesus says about those people? They're blessed. Because when we live the way of the cross, we are living the way of life. We are living wisely. Right in the middle of all of this is one supremacy that I've I rearranged out of Paul's order that I want to go back to now as uh, the, the climactic moment for all of this. Paul says in verse 18, at the beginning, I did not read it earlier, I pointed us to the last half of the verse. First half says, and he is the head of the body, the church. And you think, what is that doing in there? And you understand God uh, talking about Jesus' supremacy in his relationship to God. I can understand talking about the supremacy of Christ in relationship uh, to uh, uh, all reality and to uh, the principalities and powers and all other things over creation. But how does the church suddenly end up in there? We end up in the middle of this. Because we are the sign of Christ's supremacy. However poorly we practice it, however much our lives are so often out of line with that supremacy, we are the people who believe that, who gather together on Sunday morning and worship Christ and acknowledge his supremacy along with the Father and the Spirit. We are the ones who confess the times when we fall short of that. We are the ones who uh, acknowledge our weakness and our need for God's strength. It is the church that is the sign of these realities. Sue Juan and I had the privilege of traveling uh, in Fukushima, Japan, the province where the uh, nuclear plants melted down after the tsunami, after the earthquake and tsunami. Uh, Suwan has been working there for several years with the churches after the triple disaster in, in 2011. And I had the privilege of joining her in 2012 to travel and meet Christians there. And there were two things that I heard that were so striking to me from them in the midst, in the aftermath of all of the, of the triple disaster. One, they said, We just want to preach the gospel. We just want to tell people how wonderful Jesus Christ is. Now, as they preached the gospel, they preached it in word and deed. They cared for people's bodies, and they told them about why they were caring for their bodies and the hope that we all have because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is why we live 
by the wisdom of the cross. That's what sustains us. He is the firstborn from among the dead. We are people of resurrection. We are people who know that this life continues beyond our deaths. And we are given new life. And our, the eternal life that we live in now is the life that we will know forever in Jesus Christ. The second thing that the churches in Fukushima, uh, that I heard from them, is we want to be united. Prior to the triple disaster, they were, many of the churches in Japan, as small as it is, 2% Christian perhaps in Japan, the churches were deeply divided from one another. And what they discovered in the aftermath is a unity in Jesus Christ because God had reconciled them to one another. And so the church becomes the sign of God's reconciliation of all things. As we are reconciled across all kinds of boundaries, as all kinds of different identities, the different foods we eat, the different languages we speak, the different classes that we come from, the different economic backgrounds, all of those things come under Christ's lordship and they become ways in which we are reconciled and become a powerful witness to the world around us of the supremacy of Christ. Those things don't rule us anymore. Christ rules us. And we follow him. He is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Much earlier in my life, in a previous life, uh, I had the wonderful, delightful privilege of restoring uh, a 1952 MGTD Mark II to concours condition, we call it. So this is taking a, a car that was over 20 years old and restoring it to what it would look like when it rolled off the manufacturer's or off the assembly line at the MG, uh, it wasn't really a plant, at the MG garage. That meant taking apart every single piece of that car and cleaning it till it was absolutely pristine. This was my obsessive compulsive phase. And uh, I can remember the delight and the lost hours I had in just cleaning that car and then reassembling it and getting all of the details exactly right. I had to scrounge and, and find uh, some of the, the, the original chromed nuts that went on the outside of the car had been lost and been replaced with, with uh, other just, just steel nuts. And I had to find uh, somebody who had a car that had fallen apart and I could scrounge the chrome nuts from that. I, I went all over the United States where I was living at the time. I didn't travel, but I, I wrote letters and, and pursued and made phone calls until this car was assembled and it was absolutely perfect. It was restored to its original condition. It was award-winning in its appearance. What God does in Jesus Christ 
with all creation is far greater than what I did with that MGTD, 1952 MGTD Mark II. God reaches down to every crevice of your life and mine through Jesus Christ. God goes to the furthest extent of the world throughout history. God's omniscience knows all sin, knows all evil, knows everything that has to be cleaned up. And God cleans it in Jesus Christ. There are two problems with my illustration. One is that the world is not a car. Uh, it's not a mechanical thing. It's alive. And two, God's work does not simply restore. God's work looks forward. It doesn't look back. And so you and I, in the wisdom of Christ, live the way of the cross, empowered by the hope of the resurrection, looking forward to the healing of all creation in a new heaven and a new earth where we will live forever. May Christ reign supreme and may we be people of Christ's supremacy. Amen.